This is Chapter 32 of A Tramp Abroad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter 32 The Jungfrau, the Bride, and the Piano. We located ourselves at the Jungfrau Hotel, one of those huge establishments which the needs of modern travel have created in every attractive spot on the continent. There was a great gathering at dinner, and, as usual, one heard all sorts of languages. The table d'hote was served by waitresses dressed in the quaint and comely costume of the Swiss peasants. This consists of a simple gros de laine, trimmed with ashes of roses, with overskirt of scar bleu ventre saint gris, cut bias on the off-side with facings of petit polonaise and narrow insertions of pâté de foie gras backstitched to the mise en scène in the form of a jeu d'esprit it gives to the wearer a singularly piquant and alluring aspect one of these waitresses a woman of forty had side whiskers reaching halfway down her jaws they were two fingers broad dark in color pretty thick and the hairs were an inch long one sees many women on the continent with quite conspicuous mustaches, but this was the only woman I saw who had reached the dignity of whiskers. After dinner the guests of both sexes distributed themselves about the front porches and the ornamental grounds belonging to the hotel to enjoy the cool air, but as the twilight deepened toward darkness they gathered themselves together in that saddest and solemnest and most constrained of all places the great blank drawing-room which is the chief feature of all continental summer hotels there they grouped themselves about in couples and threes and mumbled in bated voices and looked timid and homeless and forlorn there was a small piano in this room a clattery wheezy asthmatic thing certainly the very worst miscarriage in the way of a piano that the world has seen in turn five or six dejected and homesick ladies approached it doubtingly gave it a single inquiring thump and retired with the lockjaw but the boss of that instrument was to come nevertheless and from my own country from arkansas she was a brand-new bride innocent girlish happy in herself and her grave and worshipping stripling of a husband she was about eighteen just out of school free from affectations unconscious of that passionless multitude around her and the very first time she smote that old wreck one recognized that it had met its destiny her stripling brought an armful of aged sheet music from their room for this bride went healed as you might say and bent himself lovingly over and got ready to turn the pages the bride fetched a swoop with her fingers from one end of the keyboard to the other, just to get her bearings, as it were, and you could see the congregation set their teeth with the agony of it. Then, without any more preliminaries, she turned on all the horrors of the Battle of Prague, that venerable chivalry, and waded chin-deep in the blood of the slain. She made a fair and honorable average of those two false notes in every five, but her soul was in arms, and she never stopped to correct. The audience stood it with pretty fair grit for a while, but when the cannonade waxed hotter and fiercer, and the discord average rose to four in five, the procession began to move. A few stragglers held their ground ten minutes longer, but when the girl began to wring the true inwardness of the cries of the wounded, they struck their colors and retired in a kind of panic. 
there never was a completer victory. I was the only non-combatant left on the field. I would not have deserted my countrywoman anyhow, but, indeed, I had no desires in that direction. None of us like mediocrity, but we all reverence perfection. This girl's music was perfection in its way. It was the worst music that had ever been achieved on our planet by a mere human being. I moved up close, and never lost a strain. When she got through, I asked her to play it again. She did it with a pleased alacrity and a heightened enthusiasm. She made it all discords this time. She got an amount of anguish into the cries of the wounded that shed a new light on human suffering. She was on the war-path all the evening. All the time crowds of people gathered on the porches and pressed their noses against the windows to look and marvel, but the bravest never ventured in. The bride went off satisfied and happy with her young fellow when her appetite was finally gorged, and the tourists swarmed in again. What a change has come over Switzerland, and, in fact, all Europe during this century! Seventy or eighty years ago Napoleon was the only man in Europe who could really be called a traveler. He was the only man who had devoted his attention to it, and taken a powerful interest in it. He was the only man who had traveled extensively, but now everybody goes everywhere, and Switzerland, and many other regions which were unvisited and unknown remotenesses a hundred years ago, are in our days a buzzing hive of restless strangers every summer. But I digress. In the morning, when we looked out of our windows, we saw a wonderful sight. Across the valley, and apparently quite neighborly and close at hand, the giant form of the Jungfrau rose cold and white into the clear sky, beyond a gateway in the nearer highlands. It reminded me somehow of one of those colossal billows which swells suddenly up beside one ship at sea sometimes, with its crest and shoulders snowy white, and the rest of its noble proportions streaked downward with creamy foam. I took out my sketch-book and made a little picture of the Jungfrau, merely to get the shape. Figure 9. I do not regard this as one of my finished works. In fact, I do not rank it among my works at all. It is only a study. It is hardly more than what one might call a sketch. Other artists have done me the grace to admire it, but I am severe in my judgments of my own pictures, and this one does not move me. It was hard to believe that that lofty wooded rampart on the left, which so overtops the Jungfrau, was not actually the higher of the two. But it was not, of course. It is only two or three thousand feet high, and, of course, has no snow upon it in summer, whereas the Jungfrau is not much shorter of fourteen thousand feet high, and therefore that lowest verge of snow on her side, which seems nearly down to the valley level, is really about seven thousand feet higher up in the air than the summit of that wooded rampart. It is the distance that makes the deception. The wooded height is but four or five miles removed from us, but the Jungfrau is four or five times that distance away. Walking down the street of shops in the forenoon, I was attracted by a large picture, carved, frame and all, from a single block of chocolate-colored wood. There are people who know everything. Some of these had told us that continental shopkeepers always raise their prices on English and Americans. Many people had told us it was expensive to buy things through a courier, whereas I had supposed it was just the reverse. When I saw this picture, I conjectured that it was worth more than the friend I proposed to buy it for would like to pay. 
but still it was worth while to inquire so i told the courier to step in and ask the price as if he wanted it for himself i told him not to speak in english and above all not to reveal the fact that he was a courier then i moved on a few yards and waited the courier came presently and reported the price i said to myself it is a hundred francs too much and so dismissed the matter from my mind but in the afternoon i was passing that place with harris and the picture attracted me again we stepped in to see how much higher broken german would raise the price the shopwoman named a figure just a hundred francs lower than the courier had named this was a pleasant surprise i said i would take it after i had given directions as to where it was to be shipped the shopwoman said appealingly if you please do not let your courier know you bought it this was an unexpected remark i said what makes you think i have a courier ah that is very simple he told me himself he was very thoughtful but tell me why did you charge him more than you are charging me that is very simple also i do not have to pay you a percentage oh i begin to see you would have had to pay the courier a percentage undoubtedly the courier always has his percentage in this case it would have been a hundred francs then the tradesman does not pay a part of it the purchaser pays all of it there are occasions when the tradesman and the courier agree upon a price which is twice or thrice the value of the article then the two divide and both get a percentage i see but it seems to me that the purchaser does all the paying even then oh to be sure it goes without saying but i have bought this picture myself therefore why shouldn't the courier know it the woman exclaimed in distress ah indeed it would take all my little profit he would come and demand his hundred francs and i should have to pay he has not done the buying you could refuse i could not dare to refuse he would never bring travelers here again more than that he would denounce me to the other couriers they would divert custom from me and my business would be injured i went away in a thoughtful frame of mind i began to see why a courier could afford to work for fifty-five dollars a month and his fares a month or two later i was able to understand why a courier did not have to pay any board and lodging and why my hotel bills were always larger when i had him with me than when i left him behind somewhere for a few days another thing was also explained now apparently in one town i had taken the courier to the bank to do the translating when i drew some money i had sat in the reading-room till the transaction was finished then a clerk had brought the money to me in person and had been exceedingly polite even going so far as to precede me to the door and holding it open for me and bow me out as if i had been a distinguished personage it was a new experience exchange had been in my favor ever since i had been in europe but just that one time i got simply the face of my draft and no extra francs whereas i had expected to get quite a number of them this was the first time i had ever used the courier at the bank i had suspected something then and as long as he remained with me afterward i managed bank matters by myself still if i felt that i could afford the tax i would never travel without a courier for a good courier is a convenience whose value cannot be estimated in dollars and cents without him travel is a bitter harassment a purgatory of little exasperating annoyances a ceaseless and pitiless punishment 
I mean to an irascible man who has no business capacity and is confused by details. Without a courier, travel hasn't a ray of pleasure in it anywhere, but with him it is a continuous and unruffled delight. He is always at hand, never has to be sent for. If your bell is not answered promptly, and it seldom is, you have only to open the door and speak, the courier will hear, and he will have the order attended to or raise an insurrection. You tell him what day you will start, and whither you are going, leave all the rest to him. You need not inquire about trains or fares or car changes or hotels or anything else. At the proper time he will put you in a cab or an omnibus and drive you to the train or boat. He has packed your luggage and transferred it. He has paid all the bills. Other people have preceded you half an hour to scramble for impossible places and lose their tempers. But you can take your time. The courier has secured your seats for you, and you can occupy them at your leisure. At the station the crowd mash one another to pulp in the effort to get the weighers' attention to their trunks. They dispute hotly with these tyrants, who are cool and indifferent. They get their baggage billets at last, and then have another squeeze and another rage over the disheartening business of trying to get them recorded and paid for, and still another over the equally disheartening business of trying to get near enough to the ticket office to buy a ticket. And now, with their tempers gone to the dogs, they must stand penned up and packed together, laden with wraps and satchels and shawl-straps, with a weary wife and babies in the waiting-room, till the doors are thrown open, and then all hands make a grand final rush to the train, find it full, and have to stand on the platform and fret until some more cars are put on. They are in a condition to kill somebody by this time. Meantime, you have been sitting in your car, smoking and observing all this misery in the extremest comfort. On the journey the guard is polite and watchful, won't allow anybody to get into your compartment, tells them you are just recovering from the smallpox and do not like to be disturbed, for the courier has made everything right with the guard. At way-stations the courier comes to your compartment to see if you want a glass of water or a newspaper or anything. At eating-stations he sends luncheon out to you, while the other people scramble and worry in the dining-rooms. If anything breaks about the car you are in, and a station-master proposes to pack you and your agent into a compartment with strangers, the courier reveals to him confidentially that you are a French duke born deaf and dumb, and the official comes and makes affable signs that he has ordered a choice car to be added to the train for you. At custom-houses the multitude file tediously through, hot and irritated, and look on while the officers burrow into the trunks and make a mess of everything. But you hand your keys to the courier and sit still. Perhaps you arrive at your destination in a rainstorm at ten at night. You generally do. The multitude spend half an hour verifying their baggage and getting it transferred to the omnibuses, but the courier puts you into a vehicle without a moment's loss of time and when you reach your hotel, you find your rooms have been secured two or three days in advance, everything is ready, you can go at once to bed. Some of those other people will have to drift around to two or three hotels in the rain before they find accommodations. I have not set down half of the virtues that are vested in a good courier, but I think I have set down a sufficiency of them to show that an irritable man who can afford one and does not employ him is not a wise economist. My courier was the worst one in Europe, yet he was a good deal better than none at all. 
it could not pay him to be a better one than he was because i could not afford to buy things through him he was a good enough courier for the small amount he got out of his service yes to travel with a courier is bliss to travel without one is the reverse i have had dealings with some very bad couriers but i have also had dealings with one who might fairly be called perfection he was a young polander named joseph n viret he spoke eight languages and seemed to be equally at home in all of them he was shrewd prompt posted and punctual he was fertile in resources and singularly gifted in the matter of overcoming difficulties he not only knew how to do everything in his line but he knew the best ways and the quickest he was handy with children and invalids all his employer needed to do was to take life easy and leave everything to the courier his address is care of messrs gay and son strand london he was formerly a conductor of gay's tourist parties excellent couriers are somewhat rare if the reader is about to travel he will find it to his advantage to make a note of this one. End of chapter 32